Lord, we do open ourselves to the gift of your presence and your constant love. We gather here tonight, and we're trying to be, we're seeking to be your faithful people. Help us to remember the sacred value of every person here tonight. Help us listen to the voice of your spirit. Help us to listen for the the leading of your love. And may we tonight uh, learn more about, more than anything else, what it means to be faithful to you and faithful to one another. We pray this in Christ. Amen. All right, so uh, we're calling it Reaffiliate. Um, in some ways, we're preparing for General Conference. We'll talk more about what General Conference is later on in the session. But just know that General Conference is scheduled for April the 23rd through May the 3rd, 2024. And uh, that's in some ways what we're trying to prepare for and uh, let you know what's happening, what's coming up. So um, let's just go to the next slide. We'll talk about what our sessions are going to be about in the next few weeks. Um, tonight, the big emphasis is going to be, how did we get here? How did we get to this point, this juncture in history um, as a United Methodist congregation here at Methodist Temple, but how did we get here as a, a denomination as well? As well? Um, and we'll talk more about all that we're going to get into in a little bit, but uh, week two, we're going to talk a little bit about what does the Bible say? And what do I mean by that? Well, what does the Bible say specifically about uh, same-sex relationships? We're going to talk about the um, six Bible va- passages that directly speak to same-sex relationships, and my friend, Pastor Jerry Reardon, there's Jerry, he's going to be leading us in the discussion of those pa- passages um, for weeks two and three, and then um, in week four, we'll talk about where we hope to go in the future. Uh, what's our dreams for our congregation? What's our dreams for our denomination? And I, I kind of alluded to it Sunday in my sermon, but Um, what's it mean for us to be faithful to our Savior as we move forward uh, post-General Conference uh, this year? And so that's the, to me, that's the, that's the session I'm really, really looking forward to because I'm, I think I'm like a lot of you. I'm I'm ready to move ahead. I'm ready to move forward. I want to be inclusive. I want to love all people. And uh, let's talk about what it means to be inclusive and to, and to love all people and and think ahead uh, post-General Conference this year. So, Anyway, before I really um, start my session, let me just say a few things um, um, before I really jump in even more. Um, first off, I am an imperfect vessel. I, I, uh, I make mistakes in my articulation. I make mistakes in my explanation sometimes. Um, and so I know that some of these topics might be heavy that we're going to get into. And, and just know that my intent, my hope, is that I'd be a graceful person, a gracious person, and I, I'm, if I say something wrong, if I say, say, say something that might be harmful to someone, uh, come talk to me afterwards or, or even help me understand what I did because my, my goal is to be um, growing in what we as Methodists call perfect love. I'm trying to grow. I'm a Christian in the making, and so um, if, I, if I say something that is off or or could be said better, uh, simply come talk to me. I'm, I'm very much open to that. Also, if you're part of the gay community, I want to also say, uh, if you're part of the LGBTQ community, I'm, I really am sorry we're here to have this conversation in some ways. I, I think it has to happen in terms of, it's important for our congregation to know what's going on, but um, as I said in my sermon Sunday, I just... It's just time we just love all people and be inclusive and let's move forward. But um, I think that to be faithful and to be honest, uh, we need to walk through these things one more time 
just so everyone understands. So um, with that said, uh, tonight's topic is how do we get here? Let's go to the next slide. Um, tonight what I want to do is kind of give you a brief history of the Methodist movement. So I just asked for grace. I'm about to ask for more grace. Um, so I'm going to geek out a little bit on the Methodist movement. Um, and the re- there is an intentional reason for it. And the reason is, is I want you to understand why it's complex and complicated in terms of how we make our decisions as a denomination. And uh, this is a big piece about how we got to the place we're at. Um, We don't just make decisions as United Methodist in isolation from one another. We make it in connection with one another. And that's one of the reasons why this has become such a complicated topic for our denomination. So I'll tell you a little bit about the history of our movement, what our DNA is. And then I'm going to give you a a brief history of the United Methodist debate on sexuality. Specifically, I should really spell it out here. Um, Specifically, when I say sexuality, um, we're going to talk about the debate of um, same-sex weddings and marriages and the ordination of openly gay people. That's, just to tell you straight up, that's what is on the table coming up this general conference. Um, The conversation has to do with same-sex weddings, ordination of gay people, Um, And I realize sexuality is a much broader topic than that, but just to dial in when I talk about the debate, that is, that's really the debate that we've been having that led up to this point. Um, And uh, as we dream for the future, though, I realize the sexuality conversation is much broader than than weddings and who gets ordained, but um, just for the sake of tonight, that's what we're going to try to focus on. And then before we even get even farther, let me just remind you, what does it mean to be safe? Let me translate that. You have to be nice to Pastor Andy to go to heaven. That's it. You have to <laughs> so, so I'll just translate that. No, no. Um, so I, I went online. What does it mean to be safe? And here's the definition. Uh, it's a place where you don't anticipate any harm or hurt emotionally or physically. And that's one of the first things we say as a congregation. We try to be a safe community. And uh, certainly we want this to be a safe place. And um, I can say... The last four or five years as a United Methodist pastor, I can say what it's like for me um, when we've entered topics like this, conversations like this, I don't always feel safe. I, I, I feel stressed, I feel anxious, I, I, I'm worried about what are people gonna say, and uh, I can remember what this was like. I had this almost exact talk five years ago, almost to the day in 2019, almost gave this exact talk five years ago and uh, I will say I was more anxious the first time I did it than, than today. Um, a lot has changed in the last five years. But I, I do know the anxiety I feel, and I, I know what I've felt when I've gone to other congregations and these kind of conversations we're having. And I remember one night I was at a, another church at a meeting. We were talking about General Conference, and my heart rate alarm went off like five or six times where people were talking. I'm like, stop it, stop it. But... Um, <laughs> But then I thought, if that's how I feel, though, if that's how I feel, I wonder how my my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters in Christ feel when we're talking about stuff like this. And so I just, yeah. Anyway, we want this to be a safe place, though. Definitely. Definitely. All right, let's go to the next slide. So let's just talk about the movement and what I mean by the movement, the Methodist movement. Um, If you've been around me very long, you know about the history of our church, our denomination, but you're going to hear more about it <laughs> real quick. Um, so how did we get started as Methodist? And then how does that lead to the conversation we're having today when it comes to 
um, homosexuality, gay marriage, um, and uh, ordination as well. So our movement kind of begins in 1725. Um, it was started really with John Wesley and some of his buddies from college. Uh, they called him the Holy Club. They called him the Methodist. Uh, Methodist was actually a derogatory term. Uh, they were making fun of them because they were so methodical in the way that they were gathering together as a small group and talking about what it meant to live out the gospel faithfully. So it began, that's how it began, in a, on a college campus with people getting together, talking about what does it mean to be faithful. And of course, John Wesley is a big part of that. Another big date in our history is in 1738. Um, you know this story. I know this story. I hope you know this story. Let me just say it that way. Uh, the story goes, John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. And uh, he had a spiritual experience in his life. It transformed him um, forever. Side note, May the 24th, 1738, John Wesley's heart was strangely warm. Um, and then on May the 24th, 2008, uh, my wife, Leslie, her heart was strangely warm because we got married on that day too, by the way. So, um, <laughs> and that's just a coincidence. That was, the universe came together and made it happen. And so if, if Leslie's here tonight, um, you can ask her about it. I don't see Leslie anywhere. All right, but anyway, you can just, so just know that, like Aldersgate Day and John Wesley, all that, just, that's our anniversary. So anyway, uh, so what's the big deal about that? Well, what's the big deal about John Wesley's experience? Uh, the best I've heard it described is in this moment where he had a spiritual experience, John Wesley's passion for religion was transferred to compassion for people. He felt the love of God in such a way that it was less to do with this dogmatic, rigid kind of expression of religion, and it became more about how do I live this out in the world? Um, how do I love people? And his life really changed in that way. And specifically what changed about Wesley in this moment was um, he became very interested in the people that the church of the time had left out. He became very interested in the poor. He became very interested in, in the people who didn't fit the elite. He became very interested in that community. And uh, that's really what kind of gave expression to the early Methodist movement. That was our vibe. That was who we were. That's what got us going. And so uh, Wesley began to try to share his new love for people and his new love for God. And uh, a lot of the churches at the time, the established churches at the time, were threatened by John Wesley, so much so that they would not allow him to preach in their pulpits. And so the famous thing that John Wesley does is when they would not let him preach in their pulpits, he takes the show on the road and he goes outside. And at one point, he even preaches, he stands up on his father's tomb, Samuel Wesley, stands up on his father's tomb, and he preaches to a gathering of people because the church, his father's old church, wouldn't even let him come in and preach. And so that's a, that's a huge moment because that's the moment where John's like, I'm going outside the institution now. I'm gonna take the love of God outside the institution now. And in some ways, that's kind of what we're talking about today. What does it mean to take the love of God outside the institution now? Um, and so that caught on, and the Methodist movement began to grow. And so John ends up having a lot of people who are all of a sudden passionate about their faith. And, and so the next thing he has to decide is, what am I going to do with all these people? <laughs> you know, of all these new converts, these new people passionate about their faith, what are we going to do about them? And he starts to organize them in small groups. And uh, this is where we get the, kind of the foundation of how we're organized today. John starts to organize revival in these small groups, and the smallest group was actually called a band. That's not on the screen. But then there were classes. They called them classes. These are a group of 10 to 12 people. And then those classes were organized into societies. 
and the societies were like large gatherings of people, and then the preachers would gather what they called annual conference once a year, where they would talk about um, what they were gonna preach and teach. In the early days, basically, uh, I don't know as to whether it was a huge conversation, it was more like John Wesley's like, here's what you're gonna talk about, and here's what you're gonna preach, and here's where you're gonna go, so um, that was the John Wesley way. But um, you'll notice though, there, there's this connectionalness to it. That we had small groups, we had larger groups, we had an annual conference, we're moving together as a connection. We're moving together as a connection. You can go to the next slide. And I, I kind of already talked about this. Um, but uh, this, is, this is kind of the, the beginnings of our movement in the 1700s, how we were organized. And you can go to the next slide. Um, the thing that we were organized around, the thing that, that people tried to live into was what we call the three simple rules. I gave you a list of the three simple rules. Um, you have a paper there, it talks about the original simple rules that uh, these groups of people tried to live into. And um, just take a gander, just look at them. Um, so some light stuff there. Um, one of the things I'll notice, I'll, I'll say to you about the three simple rules that the Methodist, early Methodists were trying to live into though, there's nothing about sexuality there. Nothing. There was this stuff about not having slaves. There was this stuff about how we use our money, how we don't use our money. There was stuff about like making sure we're in worship and praying and that kind of thing, but there's nothing about sexuality in there. Um, the three rules though were straightforward. You might even know them, do no harm do good, and the translation, the modern translation is we stay in love in God, we stay in love with God, or uh, the, the original translation was we attend the ordinances of God. And so my point here is there was an accountability to it. There was an intentionality to it. Um, they were very committed to it, and uh, that expression of Christianity in the 1700s, I would argue, is not altogether the same that we see today. Um, I often wonder what would happen if we got together in small groups today like that and we're like, hey, we're going to take this really seriously, right? We're going we're gonna to really do something about this. We're going to get together in an intimate group where we are known and we're going to talk about ways that we're going to live out God's love in the community and the world. And uh, um, last week, someone asked the question, what's revival look like? And I go back to these small groups. This is what it looks like. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a person like me standing up on stage talking about this stuff. It doesn't look like um, a, kind of the warm and fluffy feeling, all that st although that stuff's fine. It looks like people concretely doing something about their faith. That's what it looks like. That's what revival is. And so um, Wesley was very seriously serious about this, um, so much so, you go to the next slide. His basic idea was that he wanted us to watch over one another with love. And so every layer, watch over one another with love. Make sure we're holding each other accountable to making this happen. And so this basic spirit, though, is what kind of leads into the way we're, we're structured today. You can go on to the next slide. Um, we're called a connectional church today. And this comes out of the spirit of John Wesley. And what's that mean? Well, a connectional church is where all the leaders and congregations are connected in a network of loyalties, kind of like those three simple rules. And... Um, we are there to, to network of loyalties and commitments that support, yet they don't supersede uh, the, uh, the larger concerns. So we, we are free to be ourselves locally, but we're part of a greater connection because the goal is we're watching over one another with love. 
just like the early Methodists did, that becomes a part of our connection as we move forward. And I'll just let you in on this. When you get a massive group of people together and you're trying to watch over one another with love and make decisions together as a massive body with millions of people, it's complicated when you start to make decisions. It's complicated, yeah. Say what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's go. So how are we, how are we uh, organized today? Um, as I said, it's a connectional system. Uh, on the local level, we have what we call a charge conference. That's an annual meeting uh, that elects our um, church leaders every year. So on the local level, the administrative label we give the local level is called the charge conference. And uh, the next level up would be the annual conference. And so at the charge conference, we elect delegates to go to annual conference. And you heard that term earlier, but um, an annual conference meets every year. It's presided over, the, over by a bishop. Um, just to be clear, bishops in the Methodist church aren't like popes. It's not the same. Um, I know bishop sounds fairly Catholic. And it's true, the word bishop does fit within the Catholic tradition, but the way we understand bishops in the Methodist church are really, they're kind of like CEOs um, over a group of United Methodist congregations. Our bishop currently, his name is Julius Trimble. Julius Trimble is nothing more than, he's like an ordained pastor just like me. And uh, Julius Trimble presides over the annual conference. And so what happens at annual conference though today? Well, at annual conference, we talk about how are we gonna do ministry in a regional way all across the state of Indiana? We talk about ways, how can we work together as congregations all across the state and, and do things collectively, connectionally as one. It's a powerful system if we can make it work. Um, if you have just one individual congregation in Evansville, Indiana, trying to do things on their own, they're only gonna get so far. But in the state of Indiana, we have 700 congregations that are in the annual conference now, 700 churches working together. And when we actually come together and do stuff together, we can make a big impact. Um, as a denomination, for example, not just as an annual conference, but as a, a denomination, one of the things we did together was we basically helped stop or slow down malaria in Africa. We started a university in Africa. Um, these are the kinds of things that we are able to do together as United Methodist. And quite honestly, it's one of the reasons why I want to still be a United Methodist. UMCOR, yeah, United Methodist Committee on Relief, that is a denominational thing that happens because we still do things together. They're some of the first people that come and help during uh, national tragedy, tragedies and disasters. And so there is power to the connection. But anyway, um, charge conference is the local level annual meeting where we elect officers. At charge conference, we elect delegates to go to annual conference. At annual conference, um, then uh, every four years, we'll elect delegates to go to general conference. And so general conference is the last one on the screen. And what general conference is, is it's the highest legislative body of the United Methodist Church. And of course, general conference is what's coming up um, in April. And so general conference is what decides on church law. And uh, so we have, think about it, we have delegates from Indiana and other annual conferences all across the world. They're all sending delegates on to general conference uh, to make decisions for church law together. And uh, the big conversation, of course, right now has to do with human sexuality, has to do with same-sex marriages, has to do with ordination of openly gay people who are in um, 
relationship, um, married or in relationship, that kind of thing. And so that's the big debate we've been having. And we'll get to talking about the history of that debate. But uh, just again to say, we have delegates from Indiana. We have delegates from Illinois. We have delegates from Africa. We have delegates from Korea. And we're all coming together and we're trying to decide on church law. It's going to be complicated. And I think that's one of the reasons we're in the place we're in tonight is, well, the world's a big place, a lot of different views. So um, let's go through this. So, all right. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. I changed my mind. I won't talk about that. Um, let's go to the next one. Let's talk about sex, the sexuality handout um, in, in your packet, the second sheet. So the, the, as you look at that, though, real quick, the slide that I skipped basically talks about how historically we've had divisions before as a denomination. And the big division that happened in the Methodist Church happened in 1845, and we split Methodist North, Methodist South over the conversation of slavery. Um, and so, interesting side note, historical fact, the Methodist Church South first meeting happened in Louisville, Kentucky. There's a plaque somewhere downtown where it happened. And so they, they split over slavery. And, uh, and so I will say this about that history real quick. In 1845, the United Methodist Church split over save slavery. What happened 15 years later? There was a civil war, right? The Methodist Church currently is splitting over another topic today. And I'm convinced that it's symptomatic of greater cultural struggles we're having. Um, it's not just a sexuality tension that we're having now. We're having cultural tensions, we're having political tensions, and what you're seeing here in our denomination today is, I think, a part of a, some of the bigger challenges we're having as a people. And so I'll just throw that information out. So the sexuality handout. Uh, these are the official kind of stances that are in our book of discipline right now when it comes to sexuality and the practice of homosexuality specifically. And um, you can kind of glance through it right now. That, a few things I'll say about it, though, is that notice, notice a lot of the affirming language that is already there. There's a lot of affirming things already stated in our discipline. Um, we believe all people have sacred worth. We believe homophobia is a bad thing, it should be avoided. We believe that the church is called to be in ministry with all people. Um, that's not talked about very often when it comes to this topic. It's not been said very often when it comes to this topic. I will readily acknowledge, you're going to notice the harmful language that is there too. The big line is where it says, the practice of homosexuality. All right, so, but you can, you can take a look at it. I'm not going to go through every line by line, but, um, but you can see basically there is a lot of ways that even our current church policy says that we should be called to be ministry and love all people. Um, the debate, of course, is if you look at the main points, um, has to do with the marriage conversation, really. That's the big one. So let's go to the next slide. 
Um, so let me just kind of walk through the, the timeline. What you have there is the culmination of 50, 50 plus years of people unable to figure it out. What you have in your hand, that document. But how did we get here? Um, well, the topic of homosexuality, interestingly enough, um, what I would trace it back to, it's a timeline-wise, of course, it goes way before 1946, but 1946 for me is a big date because that's the date that the term itself, homosexuality, first appears in the Bible. Um, the RSV stands for, re, stands for Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Um, and so some translators were trying to update the Bible translation at that time. Uh, they got to some Greek words that Pastor Jerry's gonna talk about in the next couple weeks, and uh, they used the word homosexuality. Now, another thing about the word homosexuality itself that word really doesn't appear in the English language, in just language in general, as, as I understand it, until like the mid-1800s. It was a word that I think came out of Germany. Um, so it's not an old term. So when people say it's incompatible with Christian teaching, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, well, how far back are we talking? Just the 1800s? And what is the term we're talking about here, too? Um, so the word first appears in it in the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. So, just quick thing about, so what was, what did the Bible translations talk about then before the term homosexuality appeared? What was the translations? Well, if you go back to the Reformation Bibles that were first being translated by like Martin Luther and the other church reformers, um, 1500 on, um, a lot of times the verses that refer to same-sex type relationships, a lot of times the language that was used had more to do with stuff like pedophilia and those kinds of things. And it was not necessarily homosexuality as we interpreted it in 1946 on. Those are some important historical things to know as we begin to take a look at the Bible passages um, in the next few weeks. I'm not gonna go any farther with that, uh, Jerry, but um, I think I'm correct in everything I just said. Yes, okay, so um, yeah. There's no Greek word for homosexuality, right? Yeah. In fact, I don't want to rain on your parade. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, which is the big figure here, uh, kind of makes up a word um, to talk about, I'm going to say, a specific behavior um, that doesn't always compute to what we think of as homosexuality today. Um, so anyway, I'm supposed to talk about other things, so I'm not going to let Jerry's, Jerry's thing. But so... Um, so that's 1946, 1952, the, the APA classified homosexuality um, as more or less like a, a form of mental illness. This is the 1950s in the United States. It was diagnosed in that way. Um, what's that? Yeah, so it's, this is referring to the APA creates the DSM, which is where you get um, psychological diagnoses. And so I'm just, I'm throwing this out in 1952 because if that is what's being said about homosexuality of the culture that time, that's gonna create a culture moving forward. If that's what the medical field is saying at a time, um, that has huge implications on how we treat people. If, if we're saying, hey, this is mental illness, right? In the 1950s, if people were trained in that, they were told that, um, it's hard to reverse that. 
And I think some of the problems we're having has to do with some of the stuff that happened way back in the 50s and the 40s when it comes to a mistranslation of the Bible and the way we understood things medically in the 1950s. So quickly, after 1952, though, there were studies done that showed um, it wasn't quite the mental illness that people had originally said. Um, One study I came across said, hey, there's actually no difference in the happiness between homosexual or heterosexual um, males, for example. They are just equally as happy. Um, If this is mental illness, why are they equally as happy? You know, so they started pushing, my point is they were pushing against it early on. Um, And then in 1969, it's a big year for uh, the gay rights movement. Of course, the Stonewall riots, uh, police raid Stonewall Inn and in June of 28th, 1969. Uh, the reason why this is important is because the, um, things kind of, it was kind of a, water, it was a watershed moment for the gay community. It really was. Um, the police came in, raided a bar, and it became violent. And from there, the gay movement really took off. I'm not saying it didn't exist before then. I'm not even saying I'm, a, I'm, not even saying I'm an expert on the gay movement, but this is a big moment. And this June date is, I think, one of the reasons, if not the big reason, why June is Pride Month, right? Because of the Stonewall thing. Well, if you go to the next slide. In 69, Stonewall happens. Uh, there's violence that is cur- occurring uh, in a big way towards the gay community fighting against. Uh, they're fighting for the civil rights. Not everyone's excited about gay civil rights. And in 1972, we meet as a general conference, and we adopted language um, about the equal rights of homosexual persons in 1972. You see the language from the bishop. We actually became the first denomination to say, we believe in the equal rights of all people. For straight people, gay people, we believe in equal rights. And uh, apparently what happened was that frightened a significant group of people at that general conference, and they began to push against it. And so from the floor then of that general conference, is where we get the line that you're reading in the documents I gave you, that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. So 72 is where it all starts. It all starts with us as a denomination first saying, we do not think violence should be done to a specific group of people in this way. In fact, we're for the equal rights of all people. And as a pushback to that is where you get the language incompatible with Christian teaching. And this, this starts the journey for where we're at today. Um, so 1973, um, APA removed homosexuality from its list of mental illnesses. So 20, about 20 years, and it went away um, in terms of the mental illnesses in the APA DSM. Um, and then in 1976, so if you look, 72, four years later, 76, that was the next general conference. There was already motions to try to defeat it. They wanted to get rid of the incompatible language, um, but it failed, but it failed. Next slide. Um, next general conference, this is the big year um, for me. I think this is really the crossroads for the denomination when it comes to this topic. Um, the debate became whether to prohibit uh, self-avowed practicing homosexuals to be ordained and appointed. Uh, the reason why there was a debate <laughs> was because there were self-avowed practicing homosexuals who were already appointed in the church at that point. Um, it was happening already. And so um, there began a debate about whether or not that should happen. And here's what the general conference said. Um, 
the UMC has moved away from prohibiting specific acts for such prohibitions are endless. Instead, we affirm our trust in the covenant community and the process by which we ordain ministers. I, so what's that mean? What's that mean? It basically means that the general conference said, we are not going to start labeling this sin or whatever as out of bounds. We're not going to start the labeling business. Because if we start that, where do we stop? Instead, we're going to trust the annual conference system to decide who or what, who or whom are qualified to be ordained. So, yeah. If only we could just stayed there, really, in a big way, because um, obviously we didn't stay there. Um, does everyone make, understand what I'm trying to explain there with this general conference? It just give me like a, maybe a thumbs up. Yeah, okay. You know, basically we said we're going to trust our process. Yeah. But that wasn't good enough. Um, in 1984, um, the general conference met again, and they prohibited practicing homosexuals from being ordained. And, knuckleheads, but um, so, <laughs> so it's just, come on, I, but, and so we didn't get along, of course, after that, and in 1988, we do what churches do, we created a study commission, um, I'm going to kick the can, um, um, but we did in 88 uh, add this language, we affirm that God's grace is available to all, we commit ourselves to be in a ministry with and for all people, Again, we're a big group with a lot of different voices, and you see different voices popping up all along the way. And so even though there was one faction prohibiting the practice of homosexuality in terms of ordained ministry at this point, there's another group saying, we need to be in ministry with all people. And so and this goes right all the way back to the 80s. Um, 92, we met again, no changes. Uh, 96 was a big year. Pro they prohibited Methodist pastors from, at this point, conducting same-sex weddings. You know why they prohibited pastors from conducting same-sex weddings? Any guesses why they had to do that? Because we were conducting same-sex weddings. <laughs> so, um, well, some of us, not all of us. I mean, to be fair, there, it was happening. I mean, I have friends who were ministers before 1996, before this language was adopted, this legislation was adopted, and they were doing ceremonies um, at that point. And um, this is, just before we jump ahead, go back one more for a second. Um, this is the stuff that I didn't know when I went into ministry. No one told me about this. In fact, the thing that was, I was told as a young pastor coming up is this is the way we've always done it when it comes to ordination of gay people and gay weddings. This is the way we've always done it. Not true. Not true. Now, I will say a majority of the church or the denomination would say, no, we don't want, we don't want to ordain gay people. They would say, no, we don't want to have same-sex weddings. The majority of the denomination at the time would very likely say no, but there was always a significant faction that said, we feel like God is telling us to say yes. Always. And so, just to gloss it all over and say, this is the way it's always been for 40, 50 years, not true. Not uh, next slide. So, no changes. <laughs> so, um, in, in all the 2000s, um, in 2000, I began, I became a pastor in 2000. 
And a lot of you already know this story, but um, when a person says they feel called to ministry, uh, we have to sit before a staff parish committee. And so in the year 2000, 2001, I was a 21-year-old kid from Ligoti who loved Jesus and felt like I was called to ministry. And I'll never forget my first staff parish meeting that their role is to discern my call to ministry. Can you guess the first question they asked me whenever I went for that committee? Do you think they asked me about Jesus? Nope. They said, what's your stance on homosexuality? That was the first question. I just, I'm a 21-year-old kid. I didn't, I was scared. I wanted to pass. Uh, I want to pass the committee. And so I told them what I thought they wanted me to say at that point. Um, Yeah. So my whole career basically has been general conference decision after general conference decision, basically not making a change. And uh, the thing that happens, I'm going to say really post-2000, when it comes to gay rights, gay marriage, culturally there's a lot of changes happening 2000 on. I mean, it was happening before, sure, but things are starting to really amp up culturally at this time. Um, the a pivotal moments in 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court finally ruled on uh, the legality, legality of same-sex weddings, and so I think that's a big pivot point for us because all of a sudden, here we are, a denomination that won't let pastors perform the weddings, but um, we live in a country now that says it's legal, and so that we're at odds with one another And so going into the 2016 General Conference, there was a real push in our denomination. It's time to change this. Culture's changing. The U.S. Supreme Court's ruled. Some of us feel compelled that this is the right thing. Um, And so there's a real push to do that. And and things got so heated at one point, uh, they had to stop the General Conference. And finally, the General Conference said, okay, we need your help, bishops. We want you to find a path forward. They call it the way forward. Um, we want you to find the way forward through this. And so we're going we're gonna to hand it to you, bishops. You come up with a plan. We're going to finally resolve this conversation. And we're going to have, in fact, a special general conference in 2019 to resolve this um, debate finally. And, uh, well, you all were around the United Methodist, most of you, in 2019, I guess. So, I mean... Uh, Going into 2019, next slide. There were three different plans that were before the conference. One was the traditional plan, uh, maintains the current uh, stance on on sexuality and marriage. Um, It increases compliance though, because more and more people were disobeying, they wanted to ratchet up pressure, and then uh, there was increased accountability. What do we mean by that? Well, the traditional plan states that if a pastor performs a same-sex wedding, um, I think the language says that uh, the pastor is put on pause for a year <laughs> without pay. So we're removed for a year without pay for doing a same-sex wedding. If they got back into the ministry and they did a second wedding, the language says, then we're defrocked. And so we lose our credentials. And that's what it means by increased accountability. Um, that was the traditional plan, the one church plan. Um, oh, I will say one thing about the traditional plan. I didn't, it's not up here, but uh, in that plan was also language about if you can't agree with this, if your conscience can't agree with this, then there's a gracious exit. They called it a gracious exit. There's a gracious exit for you progressives. You can leave. And so 
that language becomes important as we talk about disaffiliation. The language of the traditional plan, though, in 2019, it was geared toward, it was for um, progressive-leaning congregations that did not like that choice. Just say that right now. So in the next plan, this was the one that the bishops put forth. It's called the One Church Plan. What this plan basically said was that every local church can decide what weddings they want to do, what weddings they don't want to do, and then every clergy person can decide what weddings they want to do, what weddings they don't want to do. So there, it's kind of like, we'll call it a moderate approach. Um, and so what it, was it going to remove all the harmful things happening in the church when it comes to the way the LGBTQ community is, is being treated? No, no, the One Church Plan wouldn't fix that completely, but it would create a path for churches who wanted to move in that direction, to be fair. And then the, uh, the other one was called the Connectional Conference. Um, really, I'm going to hold on to this kind of language and these kinds of thoughts to our fourth session, but um, it was kind of this major reorganization of how the denomination made regional relationships happen. So essentially what the Connectional Plan would say was the American church can make decisions over here about certain issues that they want to make, and the African church can make decisions about sexuality and certain issues over there. Um, and so we would still be together as a denomination, but there would be some regionalization in terms of sexuality. And so the, the challenge with the Connectional Plan is that it, it takes like a two-thirds vote to get that done. Just think about the Senate. <laughs> You know, it doesn't work very good. When we say two-thirds vote, everyone's like, yeah, this is probably going nowhere. Every annual conference had to take a two-thirds vote. That's true, too. So just imagine every annual conference in the United Methodist Church all across the globe having to get a... Anyway, likelihood of that happening is low. So, so really, um, the traditional plan was adopted. Um, it retained the inc incompatible language. Um, and then clergy who disobey that language ultimately will surrender their credentials. We created a gracious exit plan uh, for progressive congregations. That's, and that's kind of where we're at today. <laughs> so, um, and, and a lot has changed. Um, I think for me, like 2019, that decision was one of the most difficult decisions I ever experienced as a minister. I never forget, like, sitting in my office watching that vote come down on my computer and driving home, thinking, well, what the heck am I going to do? There's no room for a pastor like me. Even worse, what about my gay and lesbian friends? There's going to be ultimately no room for them either. Like, ugh. And I, well, you were, some of you were at the, the Sunday after all that happened. I'll just say I came in hot. And so, um, and, uh, and we committed at that point as a congregation, we're an imperfect people, yes, but we committed at that point as a congregation. We understand what the discipline says. We understand what the language says. We are serious about being in ministry with and for all people, period. Um, and so, and that does mean we are ready to move forward when it comes to marriage, and we're ready to move forward when it comes to ordaining people, too. That's what, that's what the leadership, let me say the leadership of our church decided and that's certainly where I, I am, too. I, I think it's just time to move forward. So, um, and I will say, folks, if some of you disagree with me and you disagree with some of the leadership from our church on that, 
Um, again, we're, we are here to be a safe space. We're here to treat people with Christ-like love. I want you to know that, church. That's who we are. Um, I did not start with that current stance. In 2000, I didn't start there. But the church gave me grace to work through that and come to that conclusion and change my theology. And I'm grateful that the church gave the Spirit of God room to work in my life. And I hope we could be a place like that too. Um, the more, I will say, the more we have been open about our commitment to being inclusive, the more we've grown as a congregation. I mean, some people left early on in 2019. Some people left in our church. I'm not gonna lie, that happened. But we're up to like 90 some members post 2019, new members. And, uh, and some of you joined since that time um, over this conversation. So anyway, um, so post 2019 decision, what happens though is like our congregation did, there's a push all across the denomination. No, that's not what we want. And so what begins to happen though is the, some of the conservative votes that made the traditional plan go through, those votes start getting flipped at the next annual conference. And so what was once traditional delegates that affirmed the traditional plan, centrist and progressive started getting voted in. And I think that really scared, for lack of a better term, um, some of our conservative folks in the denomination uh, to the point where um, in 2020, once our next general conference was delayed because of COVID, um, many con congregations um, started to leave the denomination because they, in some ways, they have seen the writing on the wall that the votes are such that there's a very good likelihood that the incompatible language is gonna go away at this upcoming general conference. And so what was once an exit plan, back to the 2019 traditional plan that was pushed through, what was once an exit plan for progressive congregations became an exit plan now for more or less traditional leaning congregations um, because they're afraid that the denomination is gonna change its stance. Um, next slide. You get, these are some statistics on how many churches have actually left. Don't need to go through that. One, um, one of some of the reasons, you can see some of the reasons that people gave um, why they left the denomination, why congregations left the denomination, but let me just say it straight up. The language is clear. The only reason that a person can leave a denomination right now, well, the only reason a church can leave based upon the language that was adopted in 2019 is because of reason of conscience when it comes to the church's stance on human sexuality. That's the reason. These are all reasons that people gave, but the language is clear. It has to be about, um, we don't agree with the language and the discipline about human sexuality, which to me is a little bit ironic because the current language and the discipline is very traditional when it comes to human sexuality. So I don't know. I mean, I'll let Jerry talk about that next week. So uh, yeah, uh, and next week, we'll, we'll take a look at some of the passages um, that talk about same-sex relationship in the Bible. Uh, these have sometimes been called clobber verses. Um, there's basically six of them. Um, but just, I wanna put this in perspective though. We have like 500 verses on prayer. We have like 500-ish verses on faith. There's like 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. There's six. Six. 
that talk about same-sex relationships. Less than six. Yeah, I mean, because they're just not that clear once you start dealing with it. Um, I, I mean, when people want to come to me and say, I just want to believe in the Bible, I was like, great. Let's talk about your prayer life. <laughs> like, you know, uh, you want to talk about, I just want to get back to the Bible. Good. You must be a person of strong faith. Good. Let's talk about that. And then, oh, let's talk about the Bible. So you have no problem talking with me about how we spend our money. Let's talk about that. No. We're going to, Instead, we'd rather divide a whole denomination over six passages that may or may not refer to this practice. Um, so, just, as, just a question. One of the things that people have said to me over the years is, is why spend so much time talking about LGBTQ? Why spend so much time talking about gay and lesbian brothers and sisters in Christ? Why talk about this so much? And, well, just let me pose the question this way. How many of you have a friend that's part of this community? How many people may be part of that community? Maybe you've worked with them. Maybe you're friends with them. Maybe they're in your family. How many? Yeah. I, this this con- conversation, it affects us all in some way. I mean, sure, it, it affects the people in the LGBTQ community the most because, gosh darn, they've gone through so much, and, and let's be honest, so much because of the church, because of the things we've said, and it's heartbreaking once you hear the stories. Um, but the thing I'll say is when folks say, well, it's such a small percentage of the population, we know people. These folks have names. They are family. They are friends. They're people we care about. That's why this conversation matters. We, we want to love people. We want to be compassionate for people, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm, this is a Gallup poll that I found. Uh, right, right now, about 7.1% of the U.S. population identifies in the LGBTQ um, plus community, which is roughly 23.5 million people, which is the equivalent of 3.5 states of Indiana. Just to put that in perspective, a pretty significant group of people. So when we just say that, hey, there's not that many, yeah, this affects a lot of people. So and do I have another slide? Is that it? That means that's it. So, um, so yeah, um, I try to go through as quickly and as efficiently as I can. Um, if you have questions, certainly I'm here to talk about them in terms of some of the things I talked about tonight. Um, I know some of the big questions are going to have to do with what the actual Bible verses say. Um, Pastor Jerry's going to help us with that next week. And so I hope to see you next week. And, uh, well, thank you for being here, and thank you for being you, and... and May God be with you tonight. Peace be with you and all that stuff.